Hey, we're so glad you could join us on our podcast today. We hope this message equips and inspires you. And if you're ever in the Liverpool area, we would love to have you join us at one of our services. Our service times are 11am and 6pm. For now though, enjoy this podcast. Throughout the month of October, we're going to be taking a classic rock song and we are going to be using it to springboard a message and teach you some biblical principles in your world. And so before we get into tonight's song, which I know the guys are itching to bring to you, I want to pull pull down a backdrop um, from a scripture found in the New Testament. And I want this backdrop to set the scene for all that I want to speak to you on today. And so the scripture is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and it says this, when I was a child, I spoke and I thought and I reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. If you're looking for a title for today's message, I have called this message, Control Your Child. Control Your Child child. And you're all looking at me going, yeah, Emma, epic fail right there. But there should be a line in all of our lives, a mark, a point, a period of time when maturity hits in and we choose to put away childish things. But the Bible says, the scripture says, when I grew up, I put away childish things. So I think the question has to be asked, when does when come? When is when? You know, when is when? Some 11-year-olds would say things like when they start in high school, oh, well, this is the time I grew up, mom. I don't need you at the school gate anymore. I don't need you to wave me goodbye. In fact, I don't want to be seen with you anywhere. Wait round the corner to meet me. But that same 11-year-old still needs tucking up in bed and a little kiss goodnight. So I would say that he's not ready to put away childish thing. He hasn't reached that mark of maturity. Some people would say it is around the ages between 18 to 21. That's when you mature around the age where you're legal to drink and drive, not together. That would be wrong, but you are legal to be able to drink and you are legal to be able to drive. So the law would say you are an adult. But I, however, know some very immature 18 to 21 plus year olds who still like to play with childish things and have not yet reached maturity. You know, I said to my son the other day, he's 12, and I said to him, Sol, I'm nipping out to the shops. Will you be okay for 10 minutes on your own? He says, yeah, I'll be fine. Dan Hook's minding me. I was like, well, where is he? He's online with me. We're playing. Dan will look after me while you're out. I'm like, okay. Other times I will say to him, Sol, your tea is out. He says, I'm in a competition with Caleb. We're on FIFA right now. Sol, it's bedtime. Yeah, but Will Kel is on and we're going head to head. And he's going through the guys in church. And I'm like, these are your youth leaders. He says, yeah, yeah, I know, but they like to play with me. 
So I would suggest that even when you're in your early 20s, you have not yet put away childish things and reached maturity. Some would say it's when you get married and you get a mortgage, you have a couple of kids of your own. That's the time you put away childish things. That's the time maturity kicks in. However, I have to regularly remind my husband at the dinner table when he's laughing at the boys' inappropriate jokes. No, 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 babe, you are the adult. It is our responsibility to teach them right, not join in and laugh. But the same man also likes to take me through the McDonald's drive through and order his meal in a fake accent. It just entertains him to be someone else. And then he belly laughs and I'm looking around and there's only me and him in the car. I'm like, I don't know who you think you're impressing, but for some reason it entertains him. So I would suggest that getting a mortgage and a couple of kids does not bring about a maturity in your life. In fact, what I would say is I don't think there is a specific time that you can say this is the day, the time that I reach maturity. But rather, I think it is something that all of us, men and women, I'm picking on the men a little bit tonight, but men and women, I think it's something that we have to choose to do daily. We have to choose maturity over our childlike ways because every one of us has toys in our closet that we like to pull out from time to time, childish ways, childish moments in our life where we forget that actually we are now an adult and we start behaving like children. Now, I'm not talking about having fun. I'm not. I jest when I talk about the boys gaming. Um, that's not what I am talking about. But I'm talking about actions, behaviors, mood swings, that we have little control over. So we just go with the way that we feel. You know, that is how a child would behave. A child just does what it feels like doing. And it never ceases to amaze me, the amount of people who can be so mature in one area of their life and totally immature in another. It, it never ceases to amaze me how you can be so exemplary and professional and strong in a certain area of your life and yet be so immature, so weak and lack such self-control in another area of your life. You're the same person, yet you almost are two different people according to the environment that you're in at work. You can run a company. You can boss a team. You can sit around an executive table. You can negotiate some great business deals. But at home, you are rude, you are bad-tempered, and you are an embarrassment to your family because in that environment, in that area, you've not learned to put the child in you away. You have not learned the art of maturity. And you know what? We can be one person so disciplined in one area of our lives yet so immature in other areas of our life. But no matter how successful and no, no matter how accomplished that we are or we become in life, we have the responsibility to keep the kid in us in place at all times, in all environments, in all areas of our life. Because if we don't, he or she will break out will speak inappropriately, will act unashamedly and expose you in a way that you actually never really want to be seen. I want us to look tonight in part at the story of David. 
You know, the Bible has just got some great illustrations in there. And David's life is just a fantastic model for us to look at because he goes through so many changes. When we first find him in the Bible, we find him as a um, peasant boy. He's in the field and he's minding sheep. And over the course of his lifetime, through finding some supernatural favor with God, he ends up being the king in the palace. I mean, he goes from being a peasant to living in the palace, being the king. And this is where we're going to pick the story up tonight. Because David is king over all of Judea and Israel. He is king. He has won wars. He's defeated enemies. He commands armies. David has wealth and wisdom and servants and many wives and concubines and gold and silver and horses and chariots. He's a man of many. He's matured in such a leader that he is loved by most people. He is gathered. He is created. He is delegated. He is a genius businessman. David is an entrepreneur. Everything he touches turns to gold, but by far, his greatest quality was he was a lover of God. And I really want you to hold that thought, because tonight as we explore this, we are not looking at someone who is far from God. We're not looking at somebody who is out there in the world and doesn't doesn't know the first thing about Christianity. We're talking about a man who walked and talked and had a full-on relationship with God. And I think it's important to, to know that none of us are exemplary from falling at any time. But in this part of David's story, we're going to see how at the pinnacle of his life, when he has accomplished so much, he has one moment where he lets the kid in him out the bag. And that childlike behavior, that kid nearly ruined the king in him. Let me explain it to you like this. Children, they do what they like, they say what they think, they act how they feel, and they don't give a rip who's listening or who's been affected by their behavior. If your two or three-year-old wants to have a full-on tantrum in the supermarket, they will. They don't care who is watching. If they want to lie on the floor like a starfish and have that flish, fish and have a paddy, they're going to do that full-on. If they want to talk about somebody while that somebody is still in the room, they don't care. They're going to say what they see. They're going to say what they think. So when the Bible talks about putting away childish things, I really don't believe that God is telling us not to have fun anymore. I think God celebrates fun. But what he's referring to here is taking our untamed attitudes and emotions into our adult life. We have to take full responsibility of how we conduct ourselves in every area of our lives. Have you ever observed a young child? If they see something they want, they're going to take it. If I pick one of our small children up in church and I've got a shiny bracelet or a a shiny bright necklace on, they are going to try and take it off me. They have absolutely no mark of distinction between what is mine and what is theirs. They have no concept of ownership. If they see it and they like it, they're going to try and take that from me. But do you know, it's childlike behavior 
just to go after something just because you like the look of it. We're going to listen and hear the song that we're going to bring to you tonight. But I want to intro the song by reading you a passage of scripture, which we are going to be talking from. This is the story of King David, the king who let the kid take over. Second Samuel 11 says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the rooftop of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, son of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers, go and get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. said church was boring. Mr. Brightside, classic rock song. It's a song about one man having an affair with another man's wife. It speaks of lust and greed, jealousy, running out of control. David was the original Mr. Brightside. David, yet he was the king of Israel. The king He was a lover of God. He was great with the people. Everybody loved David. He was wise in his ways and his judgment was excellent. No other king could possibly ever be compared to David. He was mighty. He was brave. He was courageous. David, the man who single-handedly killed a bear and a lion. David, the man who with his bare hands slayed thousands upon thousands of Philistine enemies. There was none like David. He was creative. He was a musical genius. When it came to writing lyrics, no one compared to David. Wealth, talent, wisdom, it poured from this man. And yet David allowed some childish behavior to come out of his closet. The moment he looked over the wall and saw a bathing beauty. He looked over the wall and he saw this babe bathing on a rooftop. She was young and she was vibrant, beautiful, perfect figure, voluptuous. Every man is like that now. Like... Don't grin, don't look to the left or the right, or you are for it, but I'm painting you a picture here. She was, the Bible describes her as having unusual beauty. I'm reading that going, yeah, what did this chick have that the rest of us didn't have? Like, she get an extra something that we didn't get, or was she just doing a handstand in the pool that day that made her unusual? I'm not sure, but unusual beauty, whatever that means to him, She was the shiny, bright thing, and the child in him was going to have. The child in him wanted the shiny, bright thing, and the king, king or not, his human weakness fell vulnerable to his childish behavior. I don't know if anyone has ever been there before. Have you ever got into something that you knew was not right, but you just 
felt like you couldn't keep control of the way you were feeling? Have you ever got into something that logic in your head knows right from wrong and even though the adult in you knows what you're doing is wrong, the kid in you is running high on emotion and can't help and you just feel out of control with the way you feel and you just feel like you can't get a grip of your emotions, you feel powerless over your behavior. And even though David knew that this woman belonged to someone else, he ignored the logic of the adult and he went for her anyway. He didn't want to marry her. Do you know that David did not even want a full-blown affair with Bathsheba? King David had multiple wives. King David had concubines. Please don't ask me any questions. It's just the way it was back then. But my point is this. He could have had a different woman every night for months on end. But he had this childish moment. I want that one. And he was going to get what he wanted. So David slept with Bathsheba. And that was the start of a right royal mess. Because verse 5 of that scripture tells us that she came to him sometime later. She said, David, I am late. And she didn't mean for dinner. No, she didn't. She was pregnant. Dun, dun, dun. This is a right royal mess. Now, David has a serious problem to deal with. But instead of the king rising up and dealing with the situation like a mature adult, he lets the kid take over again and he tries to rationalize and reason. But the problem you have as an adult when you let the child in you take over is as an adult, you have way more power and influence and authority than you do when you are a child. Therefore, the damage you do and the consequence that you reap are far greater as an adult than they are as a child. You know, there is a difference between a child throwing his toys out the cot because he can't have his own way and a grown man throwing a chair across the room because he can't control his temper. There is a difference. The consequences are far greater. The damage is far greater. And this is where we find David right now. He has all the authority of a king. He has power at his fingertips, yet he's acting like a child. Bathsheba's husband, he was a guy called Uriah, and he served in David's army. And at this present moment, he's out on the battlefield fighting for king and country. And the child in David does what the child in all of us does. It tries to fudge his way out of the situation. Instead of being honest, instead of being open, he tries to do a cover-up job and concoct a plan to get himself out of the mess. So he comes up with the idea, if I bring Uriah home from battle and give him the weekend off for being such a faithful servant to king and country, then he will come home, have a great time, sleep with his wife, and then the dates will almost line up and we'll be able to pass the baby off as being his. Crafty. But what happens is David sends a message to, um, to the commander of the army. His name is Joab. 
And the message says, send Uriah home. I'm going to give him respite for the weekend. I want him to come and just have some time with his wife. And, you know, this is his reward for serving king and country. But what David didn't bank on was Uriah's commitment to his king. You see, Uriah here comes. He's got no royalties and he's got no title Yet what we see is this man, Uriah, he shows more restraint and more self-control than the king himself because he did not go home and sleep with his wife, but he slept on the floor outside the palace gates. And now David just must have been freaking out. He's like, Uriah, why did you not go home and, and, and eat and dine and lie with your wife? And Uriah said, how could I? My friends, David, your men, are out on the battlefield fighting for this country. The Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. My friends, your men are sleeping on the floor out in the open. How could I possibly go home and eat and drink and lie with my wife? David, send me back to the battlefield. So David has no choice. He has to send Uriah back to the battlefield. And what happens is this. When David sends Uriah back to the battlefield, he sends him back with a letter, a sealed letter from the king, and he says, give this to Joab, the commander of the army. And I'm just going to read to you what the letter says. It says, the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall, where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. David sent Uriah back to the battlefield, carrying his own death sentence. The kid in David thought, oh, I don't know, maybe if I just kill the man, then problem solved. I will never be found out. I will never be caught for what I have done. The kid that David let out of the closet just for one childish peek at this bathing beauty led him to lust. I want her. To jealousy. She's someone else's wife. To pride. I'm the king. I can have what I like. I want you to see that sin is progressive. So the pride said, I'm the king, I can have what I like. Then came the deceit, I need to cover this up, I need to fudge my way around it, I need to pretend I had nothing to do with it. And that deceit led to murder. Uriah, a man who incidentally loved his king, is now dead. Because when you can't control your emotion, the kid in you will trample on and ruin Everything that you've got good going on in your life, and eventually it will kill. Your jealousy, your greed, your selfish ambition, uh, the stuff that you won't deal with, it will cost you relationally. And you will begin to lose people out of your life who have been good to you. You'll begin to lose people from your life who've walked with you. You will lose people out of your life who have helped you, who have cared for you, who have stood by you, who have stuck up for you, and you won't even be aware that you are doing it because one moment of childish behavior will lead you down paths that you never intended to go. So 
Bathsheba now has the time of mourning. Her husband is dead. But after the time of mourning, David takes her to be his wife, as you do. You see, David now has come up with another plan. I'm going to look like a hero. This woman, this poor woman's husband has been killed in battle and left her pregnant. So if I take her to be one of my wives, she's going to come under the protection of the palace and I will raise the child as my own. And no one will ever know the difference. The child in him is running loose. So we're in the palace and it's just business as usual. No one has a clue. David is just getting on with his life. Do you know what that feels like when you've done something and you hold that secret, but you've managed to skirt around it, fudge your way through it, and you think nobody knows. But the one person we can't run from is God because there comes a knock at the door. And when they open the palace door, standing in the doorway is Nathan the prophet. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament is the man of God. The prophet is the one who hears from God. The prophet is the one who speaks the word of God to the people. And God had commissioned Nathan to go and speak into David's life. David doesn't realize this yet, but Nathan has been sent to confront his behavior. Can I just say, everyone, every single one of us needs someone who can speak into your life and confront you with wise and godly counsel. All of us. You need a someone who is able to look you in the eye and say, what are you doing? And so, really, we all need a Nathan in our lives. Because you do know, right, that your spouse can't be your Nathan. You know, your husband and your wife, they might be great at giving advice to other people, but when it comes to correcting one another, you know that always ends up in a rook, right? When he tries to bring correction in her life or she tries to bring correction. We don't have that level of respect. Your best mate can't be Nathan in your life because your best mate loves you too much and wants to tell you but doesn't want to offend you. But realistically, Nathan is someone who is anointed by God, who's going to give you that light on moment in your world and remind you who you are. You are royalty. This is what Nathan says to David, and this is what the word of God says to you. You are royalty. But right now you're looking like a fool because you're acting like a kid. What are you doing? You know, Nathan comes alongside David. And I love the way that he tries to bring correction into David's life. Because he doesn't come through the door and wag the finger and start telling David, I I know from God, this is what you've done. This is where you've gone wrong. And you know, some of us more mature Christians in the house, we could really learn a lesson here. Because that's often we see issues and things and areas in people's worlds where they're going wrong, but we go like a bulldozer. Oh, this needs to be done. If I had a penny for every time somebody came to me and said, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and and you need to tell them. But wisdom, Nathan comes and he gets alongside David. And he speaks to David through a story, which is only ever what Jesus did, right? He spoke from parables. He drew analogies that people could identify with and see their own sin and see their own, the errors of their own ways. So Nathan comes alongside David 
And he fabricates a story. David doesn't know at the time, but he fabricates a story. But the story is a mirror image of the sin that David has committed. Nathan says to him, there was a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man has lots of sheep in his field. But the poor man only has one little lamb. But that little lamb is incredibly precious to him. In fact, the Bible tells us that he treated this one lamb like a daughter. He fed it, he stroked it, he, he nurtured it, he cuddled it by the fire, he gave it its milk, he tucked it up in bed at night. It was like the family pet. Now, the rich man has a visitor to his house and the visitor is hungry. And instead of the rich man pulling a sheep or a lamb out of his field to feed the visitor, he goes and he takes the one lamb that this poor man has and he feeds his visitor with the poor man's lamb. And in that moment, David is outraged. The king rises up. Who is this rich man? Something ought to be done about him because you know what? We are oh so good at pointing out the faults in each other and not recognizing the sin in our own life. I could tell you everything that's wrong in your marriage. I could tell you where your kids are going off the rails. I could tell you how your attitude stinks and all the time be oblivious to the chaos in my own life. Well, David heard this story and he was outraged. He was like, oh, you know, this should be happening and we need to pay uh, he needs to pay a consequence for what he's done wrong. We need to bring him to trial. This is what David's saying. And Nathan says to him, I thought you'd say that, David, because here's the thing. You are that man. I think he could have heard a pin drop at that moment. And then Nathan goes on to remind David just how good God has been to him. In verse 7, it says this, The Lord God of Israel says to you, I anointed you as king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and wives. I gave you the kingdoms of Israel and Judea. In other words, all the wealth and wisdom and things that you have owned, possess, all that you are, David. You got it all from me because my goodness, I gave it to you. I took you out of the field. I took you from being a peasant and I put you in the palace. And then he goes on to say, and if that had not been enough, I would have given you much much more. Here's the thing, how easily we forget the goodness of God in our lives and we become focused and fixated on all that we do not have. You prayed to God to marry that man. He was the one for you, the only one you wanted to be your husband. And now all you do is compare him to so-and-so's husband and show him where he doesn't match up. You were the one desperate to have a child, prayed earnestly that you would have a child and God heard that prayer. And now all you do is compare your child to your neighbor's child who's academically more brilliant than your child and you are not satisfied. God heard your prayers when you were out of work and you cried out for a job. And now the same mouth he hears crying out about the overtime that you have to do all of the time. And we forget being blessed. It does not mean that you won't have problems and struggles. Life might not be perfect, 
but do not forget how good God has been to you. Don't forget how blessed you are. You know, in the face of all your adversity and all of the problems that are going to come, can you still speak out about how blessed you are? You are not lying in a hospital bed tonight. You are blessed because you walked into this place. You are blessed that your body is functioning the way that it is. You are blessed, some of you, with a second chance. God has blessed you with another chance in life. I've been blessed with another chance in life. And I thank God daily for that. I just want to remind you the air that you breathe, the fact that you woke up to enjoy another day, that you are planted in this house, that you are surrounded by good people and good friends. You are blessed. Yet sometimes the only thing that comes out of our mouth is what we haven't got. What we haven't got. The enemy wants to deceive you into thinking like an ungrateful child would think. Take your mind off what you, don't, what you do have and get you sulking and pouting over all that you don't have. And David forgot to be thankful to God. He forgot. God says, David, I've blessed you with health and wealth and fame and fortune, all that you are and all that you have, it came from me in the first place. And then he goes on to say this, and if that had not been enough, David, I would have given you much, much more. In other words, David, you didn't have to act like a kid to get what you wanted. You didn't have to rise on those feelings of jealousy and pride and lust to get what you wanted. David, if you're not satisfied with your life, then you should have come to me and I would have given you much, much more. You know, the reason God confronted David, the reason that he brought conviction to his house through the prophet Nathan is the same reason that he confronts you and I today. It's the same reason he brings conviction and correction to you and I today. It's so that he can highlight the kid in you and say, hey, time to put it away. Time to put childish behavior behind you because I want to take you on to greater things, but I can't trust you with greater things while you're running with the kids, okay? And I believe that there are many of you in this place and you are praying for greater things in your life. Oh, you're praying for a better job. You're praying for a deeper relationship with God. Some of you are praying that you will have more responsibility within the church. God says, I have to know that I can trust you. Can you keep the child in you under control? Can you? want a stronger marriage. Some of you are believing for a wife, believing for a husband. Some of you are looking to do a business venture, greater things, more things. And God says, I am the God of much, 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 much more. And here's the thing. You don't have to be envious of what someone else has. You don't have to be envious of how someone else's life is shaping up. Because the God of much, much more is more than able to give you your heart's desire. But the challenge and the ownership is on you to first put away the childish things. David repents. There just comes a point in his life where he realizes that I have done something seriously wrong here. But here's the deal. 
God forgives when we repent. Repenting is not apologizing. Repenting is not, I'm sorry. Repenting is that heartfelt, what have I done? I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to walk like this anymore. Repenting is I'm going to turn from the way that I have been doing life and I'm going to go in a completely new direction. I am repenting. And when, when a heartfelt prayer goes up like that to heaven, God forgives you immediately. Immediately it is done, it is dusted and it is over. But even though God forgives our sin, our sin often leaves us with consequences that we have to live out. God does not deliver you from the consequences. If you are found with your fingers in the till at work because you were just a bit strapped for cash and somebody says, what are you doing? You're acting like a thief. That's not you. Why are you behaving like that? And you just had this moment where you dropped to your knees and you're like, I'm so sorry. I was just desperate for cash. God, forgive me. In that moment, you're forgiven. But the consequence of that is you ain't got a job to go to tomorrow. You're now officially unemployed. And so we have to live out of the consequences of the mess we made. And the consequences to David and Bathsheba were quite severe because the baby that was born to them both died. And the Bible actually says that the wages of sin is death. And even though this was an actual thing that happened, a reality that did happen, it's also such a metaphor for our lives today. Because wrong behavior, silly decisions, bad choices, they will bring about a death in your life. It will kill your relationships. It will kill marriages. Wrong choices, wrong behavior, it will kill friendships. It will kill your influence. It will kill your character. It will kill your visions, your dreams, it will kill your reputation. And you know what? Sometimes God's just going to allow things to keep on dying in your life until you do as David says, when the kid dropped to the floor and the king stood up and said, I am wrong. Do you know how powerful those words are? I am wrong. God, forgive me. And do you know, when David was truly repentant, it was just after this scenario with Bathsheba that he wrote Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O God. And let not your Holy Spirit leave me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Oh, what lyrics. Lyrics that we are still singing today, but that came out of a broken heart. And here's the thing. David didn't, God didn't just make something good out of David's life. God didn't just restore David, but God attached himself to David and took his life on in quantum leaps in ways he could never have imagined. You know, it wasn't that David had an impeccable, clean reputation. The reason that's why God said he has a heart like mine. But it was because David knew how to truly repent when he messed up and got it wrong. It was because David knew how to say, I am wrong. God, forgive me. Church, can we stand up?